We're in Joshua chapter 5, and remember, Joshua 4 was <coughs> Exodus 2.0. Joshua 3 and 4, Exodus 2.0, right? The, the waters parted, Israel crossed through. It was God's demonstration of his power over Baal in Baal's own backyard. So now, <clears throat> it looks like Israel, they're across the Jordan. They're in the promised land. They're in the land. They're, things are great, right? No. Israel is about to be wiped out if they don't do one thing. One thing. Way back in Genesis 17, God, when he was talking to Abram about the land that Abraham was going to inherit, his, his offspring would one day come back and, and possess. This is hundreds of years before. In Genesis 17, God gave Abram a very specific commandment. He said, this is going to characterize you and your offspring, your seed, as my people. And he instituted what was at the time a perfectly widespread, well-known practice called circumcision. And at the time, circumcision was a rite of passage. And it, had to believe, it was believed to have had some type of either mystical connotations or um, uh, it was like a rite of manhood or something like that. But, but a lot of nations, Israel wasn't unique in being circumcised. What made Israel unique was they circumcised on the eighth day rather than as a passage into manhood. Circumcision happened to the male descendants of Israel to mark them off as not just the seed, but those who would then, remember the word seed means descendants, but it also means semen, right? I know it's a fun lunch topic. Uh, it's the word for semen. And that's how babies get made, by the seed of the man being passed on. So all of those who were of the seed of Abraham, whose job was to carry forth the seed of Abraham, very physically speaking, literally speaking, that member, that part of their body was marked with circumcision. And, and God used some word plays when he established it with Abram. And he said, everyone, basically the way you'd say it in English is anybody who doesn't get cut gets cut. If you don't get cut, you get cut off. And that's what he was saying to Abraham. Every male descendant who is not circumcised will be cut off from God's people. That was, that was what he instituted. Now, way back, five, six years ago now, those of you that were here for Genesis 17, and if you weren't, check the video on the YouTube channel, but you can uh, see what the significance of circumcision was and why it mattered. But the, the important thing was, it was to be the characteristic of all of the males in the, people, the covenant people of God, Jew or Gentile. Gentiles who entered into Israel had to be circumcised. That was the whole incident at Shechem where the daughter was taken and they wanted to marry. So they had the Shechemites. Well, if you want to be part of our family, you have to be circumcised. And so they did. And then the sons of Israel slaughtered them while they were still healing up. And it was a terrible debacle. And Israel had to leave the land. Uh, Jacob, Israel had to leave the land because of uh, that incident back in Genesis. But circumcision was the mark of God's people. And what we read is that this new generation had not yet been circumcised. And so before they can go back to the place where God promised Abram, I will give you your descendants this possession, they have to be the offspring of Abram. They have to be the covenant people, which at this point they are not yet. So God said, uh, verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, verse 2, we looked at verse 1 last week. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives. Um, or some translation or some scholars suggest it's not like flint, but obsidian. 
either way, either of the two materials works because when you chip them off, the, the, the surface is like scalpel sharp. And even looked at under scanning microscopes, you can look at flint or obsidian and compare it to surgical scalpels and it's about the same sharpness, if not more sharp. So <clears throat> for ritualistic purposes, at the time the Lord said, Joshua, make flint knives or obsidian knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Ha'araloth. Anybody ever, does all your Bible say Gibeah Ha'araloth? It's just a jumbly, meaningless name, right? Gibeah Ha'araloth. It doesn't mean anything to us. This is the problem with these Bible names not being translated, is they just become jumbly, meaningless words. Gibeah Ha'araloth literally means hill of foreskins. That's what it means. Mountain of foreskins. Hill of foreskins. Very fitting name if you're going to circumcise a few thousands of people. You're going to be left with a hill of foreskins. So either that's what was the case or they did it on a hill named after. It's just a fun. This is my Bible study. I get to point out funny things. That's a funny thing. There's a place in the Bible called Hill of Foreskins where thousands of people had their foreskins cut off. Makes me laugh. That may not make you laugh. I don't know. But anyway, uh, so this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. Remember, everybody except Joshua and Caleb, who was an adult that came out of Egypt, is dead. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died. Uh... Yeah, had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. The Lord had sworn to them they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained there where they were in the camp until they were healed, which would have been a couple of days, maybe a week or so. <coughs> So all of the people of the previous generation had come out of Egypt, and for 40 years, what does this tell us? That generation had been disobedient to God by not circumcising their children. That generation, this doesn't surprise us, if those of you that were here two years ago for numbers or all last year for Deuteronomy, you know that that obedience does not characterize the generation that came out of Egypt. Disobedience characterized them. So it's no surprise that they didn't carry out circumcision. And so Joshua now realizing we can't, we're not God's people still. This, is, this has to be fixed. For, for us, now that we are in the land, we have to bear the mark of Abraham's offspring's covenant if we're to assume the, the um, covenant reward of being God's people, Abraham's offspring. And so he's making it right, better late than never. Uh, making it right. Now, this is before they're about to do what? Go into battle. This is a terrible idea from a human point of view. It's a terrible idea to take all of your fighting men and say, hey, we're going to do a surgical procedure on the most delicate part of your anatomy in the wilderness, or now they're on the other side of the river, but it's still pretty barren in terms of where they are. We're going to do this out here, and then we're going to go take the land. Right? You would think, okay, let's take the land, let's get settled, then we'll do the circumcision thing. No. Covenant obedience came before 
God's victory. Remember, God does things upside down, right? He told the army already back in Deuteronomy. Remember last year his requirements that he told the army? If anybody's planted a new vineyard, don't send them to battle. If anybody's just been married, give him a year at home with his wife. If anybody's just built a house, let him live in his house for a year before he goes into battle. If anyone is just plain scared, tell him to go home. <laughs> this is the worst idea if you're going to raise up an army. And yet that's what God says. Because he's trying to ingrain, once again, in Israel's minds, this is my war, not yours. You're my instrument. You're not the one doing the actual fighting. You'll be involved, but I'm the one controlling the outcome. And so Israel's only job for guaranteed success, their only job is be obedient. All God asks, be obedient. Even when it meant acting counterculturally. And that's the thing that ties this with the New Testament and the ethic of Jesus, is Jesus calls his people to do things that are crazy. Your enemy slaps you across the cheek, turn the other cheek. What? No. I'm going to catch his hand, I'm going to throw him over my shoulder because I didn't get to. I'm not going to let him slap you. Your enemy sues you, takes you to court, sues you for your, your cloak, give him your other garment as well. What kind of sense does this make? It makes no sense in the scheme of the world powers, but it makes all the sense in the world through the eyes of the gospel. And this is, this is the message of the gospel, and it goes all the way back. God's people were always countercultural, always doing stuff wrong. And the temptation that God's people will face is the same temptation that God's people face in every era. Seduction by the powers of the world to do things the way the world does it. Every era, that's always going to be the temptation for God's people. And so <clears throat> here we have Israel doing something that's just really, really bad idea from a human point of view. But it's absolutely crucial from a covenant point of view. And those two things aren't always the same. And so when it, when it happened, and they stayed there until they were healed, then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And roll away either is like a rock, like rolling, uh, or rolling like a river. Rolling away, washing away. The word, and it's the word galal. This is the verb galal. And God's saying, I've either washed away or rolled away or circled away or whatever you want to use, the term you want to use, this is what God's saying. There's reproach of Egypt from you. And so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Galal means roll away. Gilgal is what they called it to commemorate God's rolling away the reproach of Egypt. What's the reproach of Egypt? Well, scholars take different opinions on this because the text doesn't explicitly say. But one of probably the most likely, I think the most likely is, what were they concerned about with Egypt coming out? When God brought Israel out of Egypt and he was going to kill that first generation in the desert, at the golden calf incident, what did Moses say? No, don't kill them because the Egyptians will hear that you brought them out but then killed them in the desert and the Egyptians will ridicule you for being the God unable to deliver his people into the promised land even though he brought us out of Egypt. Well, God said, fine, I won't do it. And it continued on. But eventually that generation continued to rebel, continued to rebel. And so finally God did kill them in the desert. They, all their bodies lay in the desert sands in Midian somewhere. And so that, for a whole generation, that reproach, that, that echoing 
uh, mocking of the Egyptians would have been on the hearts and the minds of Israel the whole time. Yeah, God brought us out of Egypt to what? To die in the desert? And that's how it looked for 40 years. And now, though, God's crossed them through the Jordan, Exodus 2.0, circumcision 2.0, everything is right and ready. Finally, now, that reproach that had hung around their necks for 40 years because of their parents' disobedience has been rolled away. So they named the place, rolled away, Gilgal. And so, what did you do then? Well, you do what Israel was supposed to do when they were brought into the wilderness in the first place. You celebrate. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The very thing that ties this all the way back to Exodus that they've been waiting for for 40 years, that we've been waiting for for four years in our study here. They celebrated the Passover. And... The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land. Unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. So now they're in the land. God's provision of the miraculous manna that has been going on for 40 years. 40 years God had been providing feeding them in the desert miraculously feeding them bread in the wilderness who does that bring to mind for 40 years he's done that and now that they're in the land that ends because that was the whole point the manna was not the goal all along the manna was God's provision to get them to Canaan where they would then participate in bringing about to working and tending and taking care of the crops and the vineyards and the plants and all of that stuff. So the manna were like the training wheels to get them to the produce of the land. And that's where they are now, so the manna then stops. Verse 13. This is a fascinating little incident. Back in Genesis 17, Abram had been given the covenant of circumcision and told your descendants are going to inherit this land. And then in Genesis 18, Abram meets this man. Three men, but two of them leave and one sticks around. And he has this conversation with the man. He's not really sure who the man is. We come to find out, the man's God. Later then, Abram's grandson, Jacob, coming back after years away, he has an encounter with a man. Doesn't know who the man is. They engage in a jujitsu match all night. Turns out the man's God. Later then, <clears throat> hundreds of years later, Moses in Midian, tending his sheep, comes upon this bush. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. And he starts talking to it because it talks to him. He realizes it's not just a normal bush. This bush is, in some way, this enigmatic figure, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And says, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Three patriarchs are these three leaders in Israel's history, these giants in Israel's history, before a monumentous events in the course of Israel's history have an encounter with what turns out to be God in localized, manifest, human or vegetation form. And that's exactly now what Joshua experiences. Verse 13, now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man 
standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up and asked him, are you for us or for our enemies? This is a pretty, we think of this because we know that he's not talking to a normal person. But at the time, this makes perfect sense. Joshua's, Jericho's next where they're about to go. So Joshua is either scouting, doing a little recon, or maybe he's just gotten away to look and think about what's about to happen in these coming days while all the rest of the men are healing. And he sees a warrior. He sees a man with a drawn sword. It's, it's, you didn't walk around with your sword, your sword drawn. There's something going on. Either you're going to attack or you're going to uh, do something. Usually you're going to attack if your sword's drawn. And so Joshua's the commander of Israel's army. And so he goes up and he's like, who are you? And basically giving him a warning. You for us or you for our enemies? Right? This is, Joshua's doing what he should do. He's the leader. He's the man. And so he goes up. He sees this guy. And he basically steps to him and tests him out. And then the guy says, he says, are you for us or for our enemies? The guy says, neither. In the Hebrew, literally, he just says no. He doesn't say neither. He says no in Hebrew. And it's a very abrupt, like, hey, you're not even asking the right question. No. He says, as commander of the army of Yahweh, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground. NIV says in reverence. It's the word worship. Fell face down to the ground and worshipped him. Face down to the ground and worshipped him. Joshua realizes he is now one in this long chain of Israel's patriarchs who's about who's encountering God in manifest form. We as the reader met this commander of God's army as the angel of the Lord. And we've talked about that before in Genesis and in Exodus that the angel of the Lord is not one of God's angels who's like super angel, like archangel or something. The angel of the Lord, and in this case who is now appearing as the commander of the army of the Lord, always speaks as if he is God in some way and he is worshipped. And that's a no-no in Israel. You do not worship other gods, which lets us know as the reader that this is not another being. This is God. Angel of the Lord in Hebrew is what's called an appositional genitive. That's a linguistic uh, way of saying it's, it's naming the thing that it's describing. So the angel of the Lord in English, if you wanted to bring it out, you'd say the angel that is the Lord. Just like when you say the land of Egypt, you don't mean a land that belongs to Egypt that's different than Egypt. You mean the land that is Egypt. So this is the angel that is Yahweh. This is God in angel form, messenger form, human interactable form. And we know it's him because of Joshua's response. He falls down and he worships him. And he says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Joshua gets it. He knows exactly. He doesn't have to wonder. There's no wrestling match. There's no bartering like there was with Abraham or with Israel. Um, you know, there's, there's just, oh, tell me what to do. What, my Lord, what do you want your servant to do? Speak. I'm here. Joshua is faithful in his response to God. And the commander of the Lord's army replied, and this is how we know it's God. We know it's Yahweh. He replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The last time that was said was to Moses, Joshua's predecessor, at the burning bush when he received the command to go and confront Pharaoh and lead my people out. Now Joshua, the second Moses, 
is getting the same type of experience in the land before he's about to go to the Canaanites and bring Israel in to the land. So it's this bookending of what God's doing all the way back to Exodus, doing it now again with Joshua. He's reaffirming Joshua's leadership his eyes and Joshua's eyes and the people's eyes. And it's really cool because this passage, in, it ends. There's no answer. Scholars, Some scholars have said, well, we've lost the rest of this conversation or, or the early redactors uh, pulled from a source and didn't put... No, nah, it's silly. You know, if there was something that was said after this point that was important to the reader, we would know it. It would be in here. This is, this is not... If there was a, the whole discussion then we would expect that it not just get left out by a clumsy editor. But the fact is there's not a discussion. Why? Because the commanders here, the, the commands have already been given. What are you going to do? It's already been told to Joshua what they're going to do. And so they're preparing. They're about to go. And when we get to Jericho, they're going to be given the instructions explicitly. They're going to carry out the instructions. Everything's set. This is just God showing up and letting Joshua know and the reader and Israel know the exodus is now being completed. It's been on hold for 40 years. It's now being completed. The reason I brought you out of Egypt was not to get you out of Egypt. It was to get you into Canaan. And now we've finally reached this point in the narrative. I also love this section because it does something very interesting. Joshua asks a very logical question. Joshua knows that God's their covenant God. So, of course then, if you're not part of the covenant people, then you're an enemy, as the thinking goes. But we've already seen that's not necessarily the case. We've met Rahab and her household. We know as readers, just because you're not part of Israel yet, doesn't mean you're necessarily God's enemy. And there are going to be others throughout Scripture who come <coughs> and who are like, we're not part of the covenant people, but we recognize the covenant God, and they get brought into the covenant people. And so this is preparing... Again, in a very, if you just read it cursory surface, you'd read a very nationalistic seeming book, like God's always on Israel's side and hates the Gentiles, or is always again, and it's like, right here, Joshua says, you with us are our enemies, and he says, no. The question is not, is God on our side? That's a terrible question. That's the question that every despot, every theocracy, every aberration, every antichrist in history has always tried to rally people to think, hey, God's on our side. And that is the complete backwards way of thinking. The question is not, is God on our side? The question is, are we on God's side? Are we aligned with God's purposes? Is Israel in covenant with God? Not, is God going to back up everything we do? But rather, are we living out and walking faithfully and, and living, being what God calls people to be? So it's a, it seems like it might just be rhetorical, but or, or you know, like making splitting hairs, but no, it's an incredibly profound difference. When we think that that there's there's good guys and bad guys, and God's on one side and not the other, then we've already succumbed to bringing God down to our level. Instead of seeing, hey, there's God and righteousness and holiness, how are we measuring up to that on either side, Israel or Canaanite? Because Israel is going to learn a lesson very soon painful lesson. They're going to learn very soon that being part of the covenant people means nothing if it's not accompanied by covenant obedience. They're going to find that out in just 
very few chapters from now. But that's the lesson that God's had from the very beginning. Is that he's always been a God who's trying to what? Reach the world. With what? His covenant. His agreement. His marriage. His, his desire to enter into a loving relationship with all the world. All the way back to the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. In your offspring. In your seed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's what God's trying to do. That's what he's trying to do. And Joshua is still what he's trying to do. And so that all the nations of the earth being blessed has to come through God's people, his covenant seed, being his covenant people, being faithful. So it's a fascinating little passage, and it's right before we get to Jericho, which then begins uh, the fall of Jericho and, and kind of the conquest proper. But right up front, there's just this cool little couple of things going on. You know, circumcision, crazy idea. Uh, celebrating the Passover before the battle, crazy idea. And then this uh, appearance of God in manifest angel form, once again, reminding Joshua, it's not about whose side I'm on, it's about whose side you're on. And uh, so all of this kind of sets up for what's going to happen next week, which is then Jericho is going to finally, after hundreds of years of God tolerating and holding back judgment, Finally, his judgment's going to fall in his perfect and proper timing. And it's going to involve Israel. But we got to go. So there's seconds here. If you want some more, grab some. Get it to go container. Um, tell your friends. Tell your coworkers. Run them every week. We love having this place full. We'll see you next week.